Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everyone, and once again, may I welcome you to our show. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters. And we are so glad that you have joined us for what will be a fantastic podcast. All of my books are available in paperback and ebook, as well as in the lending library at Amazon.com. And Volume 6, 5, 4, and 3 are in audiobook format at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Please do buy a book for yourself or a friend, and in so doing, you will be helping us to keep this show rolling along. I will also ask all of you to leave great feedback for the podcast and the books. Don't leave it up to somebody else, but rather take it upon yourself. It means a great deal to us as we move ever forward. Now... Let's get ready to rumble! <laughs> As we enter into our cryptids and the news, cryptids in the news, <laughs> and other oddities segment, with my brother and co-host, Kevin Sheehan. Kevin, how are you today? I'm good. How about you, Bill? Fantastic. I'm chomping at the bit once again here. Today, I know we're going to be talking about the Whitehall, New York encounter and or sighting, which to me, if you don't believe after hearing this encounter, I don't know what's left to tell you. People are always <laughs> saying, you know, where's the evidence? Where's this? Where's that? Well, this was one of the most fantastic and credible uh, sightings and witness testimonies to date as far as I'm concerned. What do you think, Kev? It's uh, super cool. Let's dive into okay. it. So, uh, yeah, the place where this took place is called Whitehall, New York, which is what you mentioned, Bill. And just to set the scene of where Whitehall is, it's about 220 miles north of New York City. So pretty much straight up north of New York City. And it sits right on the border of the states of New York and Vermont, and it's on the eastern shore of the southern end of Lake Champlain. So get your map out, and you can get your bearings on where this is. Yep. And, you know, although there's a city in Whitehall, uh, it looks to be a pretty small city. I haven't been there. Uh, and it's uh, in, a, in a rural setting right in the foothills of the mountains in of Vermont and eastern New York. But it is a bit of a hotbed for Bigfoot sightings, you know, and some folks refer to it as the Bigfoot capital of the eastern U.S. So it's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, and there's tons and tons of testimonials and accounts uh, coming out of the, these foothills or the foothills of the Adirondacks. Um, yes, I guess it's the Adirondacks up there and then heading into the Green Mountains of Vermont. Yeah, this this place is rife with uh, hikers and uh, woodsmen and woodswomen 
saying they've heard things and seen things and run into things out there. So it's no uh, it's no jump uh, to say that this type of uh, encounter would have or could have happened in that area. Exactly. Exactly. It's super rural. Um, so the sighting, the specific sighting that we're going to discuss today is called the Abair Road sighting. And Abair Road is northeast of town and it looks super rural where it is. And uh, Abair Road kind of runs along pretty close to a river called the Pulteney River. And the Pulteney River actually forms that windy border between the states of New York and Vermont. So it actually forms the state line. Now, is this, uh, have you seen uh, the river, Kev? Is this a legitimate river? Because a lot of people call a creek a river. It's a river, but it's not like the mighty Mississippi or anything like that. But it, it right, is a river. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, very yeah. good. Yeah. So this is a couple of sightings on the same night back in August of 1976. So we're going back in time a little bit for this sighting. Uh, and it starts where three teenagers are in a field right off of Abair Road, probably just being teenagers. They're just outside of town, and they're driving a truck along the road there. Uh, and they see a large human form standing on the side of the road. And they turn around because they're in the middle of nowhere to get a better look. And they see what they describe as a monster. And they hear loud squealing and screaming from the creature and the figure starts to run towards them now they're inside the truck but this 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 monster is running at them and one of the teens in the truck tells the driver you know hey we better get the heck out of here and apparently the driver did so and actually you know burned rubber in the process that was reported on later and they basically basically go flying down Abair road and heading towards town and uh, as they're coming into town, they see a police officer. And, of course, the police officer sees them because he actually has a speeding trap set up to catch folks speeding that night. So he sees this truck barreling down the road at him, stops, stops the kids, the teens, and the teens actually are completely upset. And they're, they're reporting the fact that they uh, saw this monster out on Abair Road. And of course, the uh, police officer turns out to be uh, a gentleman by the name of Brian Gosling. And Brian has actually written a book about the incident called The Abair Road, or, or the title of the book is Abair Road, The True Story. Uh, so he wrote a book about it. And he, he talks of the fact that these teens are so upset about seeing a monster a few minutes earlier and they're trying to talk him into going out there to see it. And, of course, you know, he's completely skeptical. He's wondering if they were, you know, I think he said that, oh, are you guys smoking some funny cigarettes or something? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, Kev, did, yeah. did, did, they make, yeah. did they mention anything about the yardage? Like, how far was this creature away when he started screaming and squealing as he started coming towards their truck? No, no, I, I don't recall anything about how far away they were, but okay. pretty close that they were they were so frightened that they took off out of right, them. and of course they could see it. It wasn't oh yeah, and it was coming out right. It wasn't just a noise. Yeah. They saw what they oh, called no, a no. monster. They saw it first. Yeah, they saw it first, 
And then it started howling and screaming and then moving towards them. And then they said, we're going to get out of here. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I can't. What a crazy set of circumstances. And then the cop, he must have saw something in their eyes or in their actions initially uh, that led him to believe that these kids are legitimately upset about something, even though the comments about the funny cigarettes and stuff. Exactly. Exactly. uh, I mean, of course they're skeptical, right? I think police officers in general, you know, especially in the evening, are skeptical of what teens would tell them, especially if it involves a monster. Yeah, no, right? of course, he just he just bagged them speeding. Exactly. I'm sure that puts his level of suspicion higher with respect to anything that they're telling him at that point. Right, right, right. No, fantastic. <laughs> I think it's part of the, part of the training. Right? Yeah, sure. So, you know, after being convinced, and he was convinced by the teens that something was really out there, You know, we had a little bit of a challenge because he was on patrol there in town and uh, wasn't sure what to do. And, you know, somehow figured out that, hey, uh, maybe I'll call a state trooper, have them go out there. And it ends up that a state trooper is going to meet him out on Abair Road. Troopers going in his own vehicle and Gosling's going in his patrol car. They go out there. They agree on how to communicate with one another on the radio. And uh, he parks his car in one area, the trooper's in another area, and uh, he reports that it's just a super quiet night. And he says something like, you know, you couldn't even hear crickets that night, which, Bill, you know, we've we've seen that in other accounts where the the witnesses talk about how it's like eerily quiet, right? Yeah, and, and you know, this happens again and again and again. Uh, I go back to the bone pile. Uh, and the second bone pile story, both of these hunters said it took them a little while, but then they realized that there was nothing they could hear or see in the woods they were in. So this is the same the same M.O. occurring again and again uh, with uh, Bigfoot sightings and or encounters. Right, right. So he's there in the field uh, with his patrol car. Um, the trooper is in another area there, but in the immediate area, and they agree on how to communicate on the radio. And it's eerily quiet, but every once in a while, he could hear small trees like breaking in the distance, you know, so kind of wood cracking. Right. And, uh, you know, so he's starting to listen more and more. And then uh, he starts to hear more sticks breaking out in the field in the direction of where the trooper was. And the trooper calls Gosling on the radio and reportedly says something like, what the, you know, and pauses and then says, I'm getting out of here and gets in the car and takes off. Wow. And yeah, exactly. And Gosling's like, what the heck is going on? Right. 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 What could be going on? But he's still there. He's standing outside of his car. He's looking in the direction of the sound. And every once in a while, he hears this swooshing type of noise. And, um, you know, he hasn't heard this sound before, and he can't really figure out what it is, you know, right? So he turns on, he has one of those, you know, this is 1976, so he has one of those handheld spotlights, right, that he pulls out of the car, and he's aiming it (coughs) into the field. And um, all of a sudden, as soon as he turns on the spotlight, there's a giant creature there right in front of him. And... He says something that is pretty interesting. He says, 
I'm looking at something that does not exist. Wow. Right? So he's in a little bit of shock, and I think it's so cool to say it that way. Yeah, right? of course. I mean, if you're if you're ever to see one of these things, it's kind of like, okay, now all of a sudden it's right in front of you, lit up by the spotlight, but yet, you know, you've been told this thing doesn't exist. Yeah. What the heck is going on? Yeah, and you know, Kev, a lot of people are wise guys about this type of encounter. Like, they think... Oh, if it happened to me, I would do thus, thus, and so. Why didn't he do that? But you're in a state of shock, I would imagine, for a period of time. And what that time is, I don't know. It's probably different for everyone. But this man says, I'm looking at something that doesn't exist or is said not to exist, and yet I'm seeing it now. Right. It's right here in front of my eyes, but I'm told that this creature can exist right so it's pretty interesting yeah and also so much for a guy in a monkey suit because you'd (laughs) have to be a complete imbecile to stand in front of two uh two different policemen in the dark that are armed and are authorized to use their gun if they felt in danger uh you'd you'd have to be plumb out of your mind uh to put yourself oh and and let's face it he snuck up on this police officer right like you know, Officer Gosling, he's he hears something, you know, this swooshing sound, but doesn't know what it is, and then all of a sudden turns on his spotlight, and it's right in front of him. Yeah. So, you know, and actually later on, um, Officer Gosling talks about the fact that people asked him, including the trooper who we met up with later on at a diner in town, the trooper asked him, why didn't you shoot it? Wow, yeah. You know, and he and he talks about the fact that he doesn't know why, but he just felt like he wasn't being threatened. You know, that his safety wasn't being threatened. Yeah, so he he exercised tremendous restraint and self-control and kudos to him. I'd love Absolutely. to Absolutely. I'd love to talk to this man if if he's listening to our broadcast and uh uh you get in touch with me, I'd be thrilled to death. Uh, to have a conversation with you about this encounter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would be great. Um, Sounds super credible. And, of course, he's a police officer at the time, so that makes him pretty darn credible. Yeah. Um, So back to he's there. He turns on the spotlight. He sees this creature right in front of him, and he says that it brought its hands up kind of to hide its eyes, right? So it has this huge light in its eyes, it's covering up his eyes, and it lets out this howl that's so loud. He says it's something like the sound of a tuba, but he talks about the fact that its lung capacity it must be much larger than that of a human just because the sound is so long and loud. Yeah. You know, I had a couple that were fly fishing in Wyoming, uh, an account Uh, And they entered, they had a sighting of a Bigfoot, and then they entered into this area uh, where they were kind of going through somewhat of a low canyon. Uh, Just they were surrounded by rocks on a lot of sides walking into this other area to fish. And when this howl went off, uh, the woman described it as being a sound weapon. Mm. She felt like she was being assaulted by the uh, amplitude and uh, reverberations coming from this howl uh, emanating from this beast. I mean, think about that. 
No, that's wild. Yeah, I mean, what a statement that you feel like your body is vibrating and it's like running through you actually in a way that would do damage to you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he goes on to talk about, you know, some description of the creature, further description, you know, and between him and the teens, they talked about it as being about eight feet tall and about 400 pounds. Um, The encounter that he had in the field lasted about three or four minutes. So, you know, it wasn't a flash encounter. And after it howled, basically it turned and strided away from him. And he was saying the strides were at least six or seven feet long. Wow. You know, and he said it didn't run, um, but it was definitely, you know, upright, you know, not not on all fours. Right. And uh, it walked off right across the field, and apparently it was tall enough to step over, you know, one of these fences that you see out in a field in uh, rural America and just stepped right over it like there was nothing there. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, yeah. you know, and here here we go again. Uh, not that you're a lightweight at 400 pounds, but I've had descriptions where people say, you know, a thousand pounds and eight feet tall. So I really think uh, I kind of stand my ground that these are just like uh, shocking guesstimates when you have an encounter with something that's so big, you don't really know how to label it. You just throw a number out there. Well, like I've said before, Bill, you don't have a reference point, right? Like, you know, you we estimate the weight of other humans because we have reference points, right? Exactly. We we know how much we weigh. We know how much our children weigh, our relatives weigh, and things like that. So if we see someone similar, we can make an educated and accurate guesstimate to their weight. Right, When right. we see something that's eight or nine feet tall, we don't we don't really know how weight changes when you're that big, you know, are you twice as much? Or are you four times as much, right, in weight? And then everybody always describes him, including Officer Gosling, as being super muscular, you know, and, and we know that generally muscle weighs a lot more than fat, too. So, you know, who, who, who knows how to estimate that? Yeah, and really the only credible height references that I've uh, uh, written about to date are people who saw an overhanging branch or something when a creature walked by and were able to go back to the spot and then exactly. raise their hand and then see how far above their hand the branch was and like maybe when they got home, see how that related to the ceiling in the room in their house, you know, things like that. Exactly, exactly. So he also talks about the fact that it was dark, dark red in color uh, the hair on it, it was almost black. Uh, and he said the hair on its back was thinner than uh, the rest of the hair. And kind of like the accounts from last week, Bill, he said that the head was basically planted right on the shoulders without the appearance of a neck. Um, so, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, again and again, we hear about this head that looks like it's almost inserted in the shoulders or the upper trapezius muscles. And yep. and it looks like the creature can't turn its head independently of the upper body. The whole torso kind of rotates to look at you or to go back in the other direction. Exactly. Different, different you know, creature again. Not a bear, you know, not to be mistaken as a bear and... 
and uh, not somebody dressed up in a Bigfoot suit. You know, when I'm at the gym and uh, we got some of these bruises uh, doing shoulder shrugs, you know, with uh, 100-pound dumbbells or whatever they're using, can you imagine the, the power the immense strength of one of these creatures with a back and an upper back and shoulders like this guy is describing and many others. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it allows you to understand clearly how you can, uh, how a creature like this could be snapping, you know, six, eight inch diameter trees off at the uh, at the root, like we've heard about in some of the accounts. Sure, and we just had that in our last podcast, wasn't it, where we saw the structure, exactly. and then they saw the beast up on the ridge line. Exactly. I mean, those those logs there were fresh, and some of them were like four or five inches wide. I'm, oh yeah, some were bigger. Yeah, too. just yeah. just snapped clean, like you and I would snap a toothpick. Yep. Oh, that, no evidence. No evidence of any tools being used. Just brute force. Wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, Good stuff. Got to get up to Whitehall, New York. Not too far from you, Bill. Yeah. Now, I think uh, I actually saw a television show on this uh, a number of times. And uh, I think the one officer took a lie detector test, didn't he? Or am I thinking I of something else? I didn't see that. I didn't see that, but I would not be surprised. I mean, uh, it... it it seemed uh, very credible. Again, he went on to write a book about it. He he talks about it as just being the truth. Um, I've heard him interviewed, you know, and some of the things I've gotten here are from interviews with him. Mm -hmm. And um, he he you know he says he some of the some of the uh, movies and stuff that have been done about it. Some he liked. Some he thought we were weren't accurate at all. And then he published this book called Abair Road, The True Story, you know, emphasizing that this is all the truth reported to everything that happened there. Yeah. And once again, you know, uh, uh, we rely on offices to give credible testimony in a courtroom. Uh, we rely on them to help us in times of need. Uh, dialing 911 or being broke down on the side of the road, whatever the case may be. And then in the eyes and mind of some people, when the same person gives testimony of such an encounter, uh, it's jive. It's not true. I, I don't understand how you make that jump from calling an officer to help you or to save your life and then when one of these officers sees something really unusual, uh, I told you, Kev, of my neighbor way back in podcast one or two, my neighbor Tom, who told me the story of his UFO sighting uh, right up here on the North Shore of Long Island. You remember talking about that? Yeah, I do. I do remember you telling us about that. Yeah, and I mean, Tom was a no-nonsense, good old bloke, uh, served on the force, I'm sure through his tenure— he did many acts of kindness and, and, and help for the community. And this is what he saw. And he wasn't dreaming. It was two people in a squad car that both saw the same thing. And he shared it with me. And I said, wow, that's unbelievable. I mean, to me, it was believable. But you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's yeah. totally unusual. Very cool. 
So, you know, back to back to the trooper, too. You know, I mentioned it a little bit, but I do want to spend a couple of minutes on it. So uh, when the trooper took off and then uh, um, um, uh, sorry, officer, officer Gosling left after seeing the Bigfoot and seeing the Bigfoot take off. He went back to a diner in town that apparently, you know, uh, that's where the law enforcement folks would kind of stop to get a cup of coffee. And he went into the diner and at a table in the back of the diner, this trooper that was with him out there was sitting and he said he was visibly shaken up. And um, um, the trooper was asking him, you know, what he saw in that. And they described the same thing. And, um, you know, Officer Gosling was like, well, come on, we got to go and tell people about this. And he, the trooper said, no, I can't. I don't want to say anything about it. You know, forget it. I didn't see anything. So, you know, you see that also that fear of like people thinking he's going to be crazy, you know, and who knows, maybe even lose his job if he says that he saw something yeah. like this. Yeah. And you know what? Let's jump back to the shaking camera syndrome. <laughs> I can only I can only imagine in my own life the adrenaline flow and rush that would accompany a close quarters encounter with something of this magnitude. I mean, to think that you're just going to be standing there steady as a rock on an even keel and just be able to think or do whatever it is you want to do in the moment... I think is more bizarre than the encounter. I agree with you. You know, think of, I mean, even how this officer could keep his composure when he fires up a spotlight and this thing is right in front of him. Well, let me tell Holy cow. Let me tell you something, bro. The revolver's in my hand. It's empty. <laughs> it's empty after about five seconds. I would have cracked that thing with six slugs and I would have been shoving more in the chambers to do it again. You would have been throwing some lead that Let me tell you something, man. No kidding, man. Bang, 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 bang. Here, take some more. Bang, 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 bang. That's how that would happen. Wow, man. Spotlight, forget about it, man. Holy cow. I'm getting charged up just thinking about it. <laughs> Good stuff. Oh, my Good goodness. Stuff. Well, kudos to these guys, and that is just an incredible encounter. And you know what? Uh, I kind of feel bad for the other officer because, you know, everybody takes stuff in different ways. You know, uh, one person rises to a certain occasion and another person is left... Uh, kind of shell shocked. We're human right. beings. You don't know how you're going to take something uh, until you you're, you're thrown into the fray. No idea, right? And it's very reasonable that he would have some fear associated with coming out with the store. Certainly, certainly. Well, that's a fantastic story, Kev. All right, so I'm going to jump into something here that. It's going to blow your mind as if that didn't blow your mind. I'm going to throw you a Bigfoot hand grenade. And <laughs> this sighting was shared with me by uh, Thomas Haynes, uh, a resident of Montana. Uh, and this is what Thomas saw 
on June 23rd, 2005. And by the way, uh, the encounters that I speak about on the podcast uh, come from my many books. Uh, We like to read them to you and discuss them, which we can't do in the writings. Uh, But certainly uh, go out there, give a listen, get an audio book, get a paperback, get an e-book, and dig into some of these things for yourself. Uh, I can go through these things over and over and over again, and uh, really, frankly, I just can't get enough of them. So Tom says, I believe it was in 1996 that I had purchased a framed copy of Thomas Moran's painting entitled The Golden Gate. Kev, have you ever seen this painting? I don't think I have. You know, make it a point. Uh, Jot it down, The Golden Gate. This is one of the most magnificent paintings uh, I've ever seen uh, of a natural setting. And... uh, just incredible and it always brings me back to Lewis and Clark and we were talking about Davy Crockett these people were out there and seeing things in this country for the first time that nobody had ever seen before and uh, painting them and writing about them and this is just an incredible spectacle to see uh, this Thomas Moran painting entitled The Golden Gate So he goes on to say it was painted in 1893, depicting an area of Yellowstone National Park 22 years after Moran had visited the area as a member of the Hayden Expedition of 1871. Now, you know, kept this name Hayden, too. You know, we have the Hayden Planetarium at the Museum of Natural History in New York. Right. And when I hear these names, uh, I, I wonder if it's the same Hayden. Uh, a lot of these people contributed greatly uh, to many of the things we now uh, enjoy. Absolutely. <clears throat> but uh, so Moran was a member of this Hayden expedition of 1871. And he says the painting depicts a magnificent view looking down through the canyon with the river flowing below and the falls cascading in the distance. For years, I stood and stared at this painting on my living room wall in an attempt to experience what Moran had so many years before. I thought about the hardships they must have endured, and yet, out of everything, this magnificent masterpiece had emerged, which to me proved that adversity fuels greatness. This is, after all, the way in which a diamond is formed from a common lump of coal after having been placed under great pressure for many years. I had often thought about visiting the location in the painting for myself to experience firsthand that which had inspired Moran to paint such a masterpiece. After much planning and saving, the day came that I found myself hiking into Yellowstone, heading towards the very same area where Moran's inspiration had been sparked. On June 23rd, 2005, at 11 o'clock in the morning, I was standing with a photograph of the painting in my hand in the very spot where Moran had stood. It was a rugged hillside tucked in between two adjacent mountains, with the valley having been cut by the river's waters over millions of years. 
surrounding me and below me just as Moran had painted it were gigantic boulders of every shape and size with scrubby pines growing both in, around, and through them on the slope. It was a magnificent sight to behold. I could smell the river, the stones, and the soil around me, and I paused to ponder those men who had seen this for the first time in 1871. This tract of land, as well as the land west of the Mississippi, had been acquired by President Thomas Jefferson in 1803 in a deal that had been struck between him and Napoleon's France. On my right-hand side was basically a sheer rock face with a trail cut through it about midway, the the entirety of it being devoid of any plant life. To my left-hand side was a similar rock face which had a somewhat rounded top covered in mostly pines, the sides of which sloped down midway to meet the river's edge. This side had a tremendous amount of tree growth associated with it throughout. I had been sitting in this area for well over two hours, being in no hurry whatsoever to leave, when I saw two darkly colored figures coming up the slope to my left, ascending from the river in the valley below. They appeared as two black ants would, crawling across tan-colored sand. The slope on which they were moving, having no plant life on it whatsoever, allowed me to see their outlines perfectly. As I put my binoculars on them, the distance was still too great for me to see with great clarity, but one was taller than the other, and they were both walking on two legs. The creatures were climbing a slope which had to be a 60-degree incline, and were doing so rapidly without the aid of any walking poles or the like. This slope had to be several hundred yards or better, after which it met with a sheer cliff of some 200 feet, which was crowned with trees. I could tell as I watched them that their arms and their legs were abnormally long as compared to their torsos. They were both taking what I would call very long and athletic strides in human standards as they ascended the slope. When they had reached this cliff, where the grade changed from, say, 60 degrees to near vertical, the creatures began to scale the rock wall like two spiders. There was no break or respite taken by either of them in doing so. They had just ascended a very steep slope at a record pace and were now scaling a sheer rock face at a rate that didn't seem humanly possible. The reality was that they were not humans. Exactly what they were at the time, I could not say. They appeared to be the coloration of a chocolate Labrador dog. Without the aid of any climbing gear whatsoever, these creatures scaled this cliff face with the ease of walking up a flight of stairs. I was mesmerized as I watched them. The creature who had taken the lead on the climb, having reached the top, simply stood up and walked into the trees with the second following shortly thereafter. Looking back, I now realized that I was watching two Bigfoot. 
It made me wonder if Moran and the expedition crew hadn't run into the same in 1871. I guess with magnificent landscapes come magnificent creatures, and I had just seen two of them. The most incredible aspect of this sighting was the strength and athleticism exhibited by these creatures. What they accomplished in a matter of 10 minutes would have taken experienced hikers and climbers hours to achieve. This entire sighting was the icing on the cake as far as my journey was concerned, and it was a day that I will never forget. What do you think of that, Kev? Wow, I could just picture it. It it actually reminds me of the setting, uh, which I want to come back and ask you uh, again wh- where this was. But it reminds me of the setting when I was up in Alaska recently. I know it wasn't there, but we were when we first got to this area on Chinitna Bay, and we were looking out in the distance. You could see these little tiny dots uh, that turned out to be you know gigantic brown bear in the distance but they looked like ants in the sand like uh like this account described you know in the distance and you'd get out the binoculars and you'd be like oh okay those are clearly some big brown bear and then as they moved closer and closer of course they got larger and larger but it's that same kind of thing you had to look really hard to see them in the beginning in the distance and then make out what they were and which way they were heading yeah and you know, we always have to keep in mind when we're hearing an account like this or anytime anybody's saying something to us, this guy was trying to position himself in the exact spot where uh, the painting had been uh, first uh, seen in the mind of this great painter. And, of course, he has no reference point. He hasn't been down to the river. He has no idea how far the distance is he's looking at. He's looking at this magnificent vista, this scenic vista with the cascading falls and the mountains to the left and the right, and he's standing over this gigantic gorge with the river flowing through it, and he sees these things that he describes as ants walking in the sand. So there's no there's no judgment of distance. He doesn't know how far away it is. Oh no! And if you would ask me how far away those bears were when I first saw them, I I wouldn't know how to judge it. Yeah, that could be a mile, could be two. Right? Yeah, who knows? Don't know. Yeah, you don't yeah. know. Just incredible, though. You know, and you know, and this all started with uh, his desire just to place himself where this, he was infatuated with this magnificent painting and he just wanted to be there for himself. And did he say in the description where this where this is? He said it's part of Yellowstone uh, National part of Park. Yellowstone. That, that's what I thought, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I think now, I, I can imagine this image now that you're talking about. Um, the name sounded familiar and now I think I can imagine that that I have seen this painting, so I'm going to have to check it out when we wrap up. But yeah, spectacular. And then the description of we've we've heard before how they moved, you know, so quickly up a steep incline, you know, prior than to scaling the rock with ease. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, sheer rock, th- unbelievable. It's like there's no fear. They're not thinking about can I do it or will I accomplish this. Uh, They just have at it. Like, you know, when we see a mountain goat standing or jumping down the side of some sheer rock face with these hard little hooves and no hands, 
and they're just clicking and clacking along, jumping down onto these little nothing uh, perches or ledges, and they're hanging out there. I mean, this is where they live. Yeah, just like another day, just like us walking down the sidewalk. Yeah, and you know something? I've never heard of a mountain goat being found dead having fallen from the side of a cliff. <laughs> it's, just, it's just an incredible, incredible thing. Now, they're, they uh, certainly appear to be quite sure-footed, even though they're, you know, seen in these treacherous, precarious settings. Yeah, and like, we were just talking about uh, the Bigfoot fi- uh, sighting in Whitehall. Uh, once again, how the description was that of a head being pushed down into muscle. I mean, right. these things, these, these things are ripping up the side of this slope and then up the cliff. Uh, like you or I would walk up a set of stairs. That's what he said. And it's, it's like nothing to them. No, and when we go all the way back to, might have been our first podcast, the the uh, uh, Utah, Provo, Utah sighting, um, where the folks saw the Bigfoot there up on the, up on the mountainside, and then when they went to go up there to see where it was, they couldn't believe how tall uh, or how steep and slick these inclines were you know what they looked they didn't look as steep and slick or didn't look as steep from a distance but then when they went over there to try and climb up to where they saw the creature they couldn't believe that anything could climb up these uh these ridge lines yeah yeah it's just incredible i mean they are just a uh a species uh, that there's nothing else to compare with. You know, I mean, it's just a, a fantastic, fantastic thing. And uh, as you know, the people that are listening to our broadcast, I think for the most part, uh, believe in the existence of this creature, and I do myself. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I go back to what I said many times uh, before. To those who believe, no further evidence is necessary. And to those who don't, no amount of ev- evidence will suffice. It's just mm. that. It's just that way, right? You know, right. E- either you got it or you don't, my friend. And uh, I'm not going to argue the point. I'll just walk away. There's no sense. Well, it's like Officer Gosling said in his account. Um, he was looking at something that he knew couldn't exist, or he had believed didn't exist. Right. So, and suddenly, cool. there it is. There it is. <laughs> wow. Man, man meets Bigfoot. Hello, Bigfoot. How you doing today? <laughs> you extend him a hand, and he gives you a Joe Jitsu flip like the Dick Tracy cartoon, and you're dead. <laughs> I was going to say, you're not extending your hand. You just had to throw him left No, that's me. I'm talking some oh. other numbnut. <laughs> Remember Joe Jitsu and Dick Tracy? Yeah. Joe Jitsu calling Dick Tracy, come in, Dick. <laughs> he was always that little guy in like a trench coat, right, or something, and he'd just <laughs> extend his hand and start flipping people left and right until they were unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> and, folks, that's our description of the hair <laughs> So what do we got from our listeners today? I'm sure we've got some interesting stuff. Yeah, we got some good listener mail from uh, all around the world. Um, first one we're going to go to is from Willie in Panama. 
Wow. So down in Central America, he says, I'm really enjoying this podcast, and I'm very grateful for what you're presenting. Is this creature present anywhere that you know of other than the North American continent? I have only heard two episodes, so forgive me if you've already spoken of this. Great work. Wow. Yeah, Willie, hey, never apologize for ask, answering a question, ask, asking a question, because in Bigfoot, repetition is the norm. Uh, we address and talk about the same or similar things over and over again, and that, in fact, establishes the credibility, in my mind, of the existence of the creature, hearing the same things, the same descriptions, uh, whether it's about what they look like, their movements, their actions, their activities, what they're seen doing. So don't apologize. But Kev, uh, why don't you tackle that about uh, where these creatures are seen? His question was, are they seen anywhere else other than North America? Yeah, I mean, that they basically are seen in many rural settings uh, around the world. You know, the probably the most famous other sightings are the abominable snowman or the Yeti in uh, the Himalayas of uh, Tibet and around that entire region. You know, that's that's as famous as Sas Sasquatch and Bigfoot in North America. And then, of course, you have my favorite named hairy man in the world, Bill, right? What, who's that? The Yowie! <laughs> Yowie! <laughs> Down under. <laughs> and, and pretty much everything in between. So, you know, we, we talk about them, and we'll talk about more of the creatures from uh, from around the world. But yes, I mean, they, they, they generally have to, you know, they generally are in a place that's uh, wooded and with, with some type of uh, cover for them to uh, behave in a stealth-like way and somewhere where they have a food source or food sources as well. Yeah. Fantastic, Willie. Thanks for chiming in with us. Yeah, good stuff. Excellent. All right, and we are going to head east down towards Antarctica from miles in South Africa. Wow. Yeah, I think this is our first uh, letter from South Africa. Great show. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. Wow, that's a long, <laughs> long way from home, Miles. <laughs> hey, Miles, you, actually... you got any good bagels down there? <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, Miles, I'm recording today from Brooklyn, New York. So uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to filter out the sirens in the back. <laughs> But it's beautiful here, uh, but boy, it's a long way from South Africa. So he says, it's great to hear your accent, Bill. I think he sees, uh, he thinks you have a South African accent, maybe? Yeah, what accent? <laughs> what accent are you talking about, Miles? Why don't you oh, step gets, it up, brother? This gets better. He says, it brings back many fond memories of playing stickball sewer to sewer. <laughs> That's awesome. Now you're reminding me of playing stickball. <laughs> and, you know, people around the country, they have no idea what he's talking about. I know. But, I mean, I used to love playing Yeah, stickball. but, you know, we, there weren't parks or big areas of uh, any lots or anything. So you and a couple of guys would go out in the street with a broom handle and a spalding 
and uh, you know, with the cars parked on the curbs and everything else, and you'd play stickball, whacking this thing around, and you had, you know, well, if a ball goes two or three sewers, it's a home run, and you know, the door handle on the Chevy was uh, first base, and yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. I, I, I that's mean, exactly it, right. That's that's how it happened. And if it breaks a window, you run as fast as you can. <laughs> I didn't see nothing. I don't know nothing. <laughs> but back to Miles, he says, uh, any reports from the African continent of such creatures? I haven't heard of anything, but I wouldn't consider myself in the loop to hear that kind of thing. Thanks so much, Miles. Wow. Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, it's not in my investigation sphere, but maybe we'll take that on as we take on so many other things, Kev. No, that sounds good. I don't, I don't know of any sightings in Africa, but there could be. Yeah. It's, it's worth worth looking into. Yeah, I mean, talk about wildlife. Jeez. I, yeah. You know, but again, you're talking about uh, another continent like Australia. Uh, how many people are there relative to how many millions of square miles of of, of uh of emptiness and plains and tundras and mountains and animals and lions and tigers and bears. <laughs> oh my! Yeah, not not many people in Australia, and certainly um, the the population is concentrated in several areas around the rim of the continent. Right. And, and Africa, you know, I I don't know what the population concentration looks like, but certainly miles there in South Africa. You know, big, highly populated area, and then uh, a lot of vastness uh, between uh, the southern tip of Africa and the uh, northern edge, and uh, the east and west coast of uh, of emptiness. Wow! So could be, could be. Yeah, we'll, we'll check into that. Yeah, we'll definitely check it out, man. Everything's grist for the mill. Absolutely. All right, and now we're coming back to the United States from Paul. And he says, I lived in Spokane oh. for the past 40 years. Well, I didn't live there for 40 years, Paul, but I lived there for about four years. Uh -huh. uh, and he said, I found your conversation about the fire tower and Quartz Mountain amazingly coincidental. Several times while hiking that very same mountain, my hair has stood up and I felt as though I was being watched. Wow. One time, I thought I saw what may have been a Sasquatch move through the trees, but it was so fleeting, it was truly unidentifiable. Wow. You are the best. Wow. Cool. Wow. You know, Kevin. up uh, reading that. <laughs> <laughs> you better turn around. Somebody may be coming through the door <laughs> in Brooklyn. <laughs> hey, your money or your life, bud. <laughs> Hey, when we're done recording this, I'm going to go play some stickball. <laughs> yeah. Just gather up some kids out in the street and tell them you want to play. Uh, Matt, you know, it is it is something. Uh, you know, I, uh, we were talking about, when we were talking about Quartz Mountain and the fire station, how Quartz is said to uh, be very energetic uh, storing uh, electricity. And I, and I remember the old quartz crystal radios, Kev. You remember them? I do, now Now that you mention it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I had one that came from a company called Heathkit. 
Yeah, they used to have those kits that you'd build a radio from, right? Right, and the power source was a little piece of quartz. Hmm. And uh, I remember hooking this thing up in the bathroom, and I used the wire coming off it. The ground wire went to the bolt that held the toilet to the floor. (laughs) I mean, I was in the bathroom, and that was a ground, the plumbing in the house. Wow. And I remember it had some type of little... Uh, a needle or scratching kind of dial on it where you would kind of have an earpiece in and oh i remember that it had like a coil yes that you would slide the scratchy thing across yes yes it It was like it was like a record needle yeah exactly and the coil was like the grooves in a record yep and you know you could barely hear anything but by god this thing could pick up radio stations very cool. And so you figure you're on Quartz Mountain, a mammoth size uh, outcropping of quartz. What kind of activity uh, electrically uh, could be going on there with his hair standing up and these odd feelings like he's being watched? And then he says he thought he may have seen a Sasquatch, which I'm sure... Tens upon tens of thousands of people have had this fleeting sighting, as he described it. Well, you're just not given enough. It's just like a flash and a bang and it's over. Yeah. Uh, But very, very interesting. You know, very interesting. Yeah, I think his hair was standing up because he was scared. Because I was scared reading it. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. All right. Uh, Let's go. uh, We'll go to our last... uh, viewer mail for this week and it's from Enrique in southern Mexico and uh, Enrique says there is a rich history of giants covered in hair living or having lived in the valleys of southern Mexico I know no one who has seen anything but would enjoy an investigation on your part relative to these claims the mix on your podcast is excellent and I just purchased my first book Awesome, Enrique. And you know something? Uh, I was made privy to exactly what you're talking about uh, quite a few months ago. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Uh, I had heard tale of such activity uh, in the most remote parts of uh, uh, southern Mexico. Uh, You know, this is, again, Kev, you know, when we talk about Uh, uh, countries, uh, continents, you know, everybody's got their own picture in their mind's eye of what it is, what Mexico is, you know. Uh, But I don't think a lot of people uh, uh, give much thought to the fact that there is tremendous wilderness in its own way, shape, and form in every country and every continent of the world. And Mexico has a lot of of wilderness it's a big place yeah and it may be different uh than walking through the kootenay uh but there are forests rainforests jungles rocks waters ponds and probably bigfoot stomping around down there as well (laughs) wow good stuff excellent enrique yeah, thank you for the notes, uh, and thanks for buying the book, too, Enrique. Awesome. Cool. So, well, that's it for this week, Bill. Awesome. And again, Kev, uh, let's encourage everybody, 
If you've seen something, say something. Or if you just want to contact us, like many of these listeners have, uh, go to our website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Hit our contact uh, button or link and uh, give us a shout, even if it's just to say hello. We love to hear from you. We love to hear from you. Yeah, and, and by the way, you know, check out the episode section. I have been adding in some links and some images where appropriate that we describe uh, in the podcast. So, it, you know, you'll you'll get a little reward for going there. Excellent, Kev. Excellent. And my friends, until we meet again, may I leave you with this sobering thought. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.